0: The Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by Vivid Learning Systems and the Health and Safety Institute. Episode number 11. My name is Jill James, Vivid's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Mark, who is a consulting industrial hygienist who recently left private sector employment and is working out of Columbia, Maryland. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jill. Glad to be here.
0: So, Mark, leaving private sector for consulting, that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal. How many years had you been in private sector?
1: I I started uh, working in 1980, 1981, so just finished 36 years. Wow. And it, it's pretty exciting to do sort of work on my own and uh, hoping for the best.
0: So 36 years in the role of industrial hygiene. Right, right. right.
1: And, and, and in that, you know, like many of us, you know, I've often been a generalist, so, you know, done safety work and environmental work, part of all that, but I sort of like to, to keep my grounding as an industrial hygienist.
0: Right. So, Mark, the centerpiece of this podcast is asking how people accidentally came into the health and safety practice. And going back a number of years for you, what did that look like back then? I mean, OSHA, OSHA had been around for a little you said nineteen eighty six, so coming up, yeah. oh, 1981, So One, just yeah. a little over a decade.
1: Yeah, and you know, I was I was an undergrad in the, in the mid to late seventies, and, and in graduate school a little bit. And didn't I grew up in a blue collar family in Akron, Ohio? So most mm-hmm. of my relatives worked in the rubber shops, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't do that sort of work, but had a sense of what that kind of work was like. And uh, but I was at the University of Akron State University, first of my family to go to college. So. I was, um, and this was a number of years after Earth Day, so I was really planning to have an environmental uh, career and be an environmental scientist and work on air and water pollution and those sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. And near the end of my undergraduate time, I actually ran into a guy who worked for Federal OSHA. He was an inspector for Federal OSHA. Mm -hmm. And he described his work as environmental work inside factories. And that just... That just opened up this whole world that I really hadn't known about in terms of occupational safety and health as a possibility to me. And it and, and sort of led me in that direction. And it was the perfect thing for him to say because it led me to this marvelous career the last 30 plus years.
0: Wow, how interesting. Because yeah. before in your head, you were just thinking about, um, like you said, you were thinking about celebrating Earth Day. So you're really thinking about the things that were more impacting the environment in our outside world, not necessarily what was happening to people. Inside the places where they live, where they worked.
1: Right, right, and and my family were, as I said, my family were blue collar workers. My father and mother had worked in the rubber shops. And my dad was ended up being a mechanic. My uncles all worked in the rubber shops. So, you know, and 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 I had you know, a little bit of awareness of of some of the health issues and uh, and safety issues, but the idea that this could be something I would focus my my scientific interest on, and my and I could use as as work was something that never never crossed my mind. But mm-hmm. it's interesting when you look back on it, historically, there was actually occupational safety and health was a part of Earth Day and a part of a lot really? of the environmental discussions back in the late 60s and up until the time OSHA was passed. So so folks back then, a lot of those folks who did environmental work saw occupational health as a as a part of their work.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And so having had the um, blue collar background that you did with your family, as did I, um, I I often, well, I think it's probably the first thing I often think about is where those roots are whenever, whenever I'm applying um, my safety background is thinking about, you know, what would have my what how would have this impacted my family or the factory where my dad worked? Uh, Is that a lens that you've looked through throughout your career?
1: It has been, and, you know, and I think the, I think especially of several of my uncles who worked in the rubber shops and some of who ended up with work-related asthma and some related, some with asbestosis over the years back from, mm. you know, they started work back in the in the 40s or 50s. So, mm. you know, working to improve conditions in workplaces like that really was just really exciting and really felt good to do this sort of work. And when I go out to work sites often, it would, especially early on when I was, you know, when you're, when you're younger and you go out to industrial work sites with a bunch of older workers, Mm -hmm. you can be intimidated because, you know, they've been around a long time and you're brand new. Right. But I, I would look at these, I would look at a lot of these guys and think, oh yeah, this could be my father. These could be my uncles. And, you know, and I, you know, felt comfortable talking to them. So it made it easier to do this work.
0: Yeah. yeah it I also see. gave
1: me some pushback because I remember my, you know, my uncles would and my father would sometimes come home and talk about the work study people who were uh-huh. in, in there. And they, you know, they were <laughs> causing reviled, trouble <laughs> and they were reviled by <laughs> yeah. most of the workers, that you know, the relatives I knew. And so I remember one of my earliest sampling uh I was in a sampling in a warehouse for carbon monoxide with Draeger tubes. And, you know, you, mm-hmm. you're pulling the Drager tubes and you're waiting. And, and I realized at one point none of these guys in the warehouse knew why I was there. No one had yeah. told them why I was there. And I had this shudder that went up my spine. Thought, oh, my God, they probably think I'm work. St- they probably think I'm time study. They probably hate me. Yeah. So I was like, I need to let, you know, I need to make sure people know why I'm there when I'm doing my work. And so, yeah. you know, that's something I've always tried to. To do is make sure either the employer or whoever has brought me in or that I'm able to tell people why I'm doing the work. And, you know, you you both get feedback from people and and insight that you might not have gotten otherwise, but also gives them a positive sense of why I'm there as opposed to time study.
0: That's so that's so true Um, that often was part of my work when I was an investigator with OSHA. You go into a factory and you know, the expectation of the of the investigator or the governor a govern government rather was that you're wearing a hard hat with a government logo on it. Yeah, And immediately that makes people fearful depending on where they're working and what they're doing. And so when I got into facilities, most of the time I would ask if there was company personal protective equipment that I could wear so that I wasn't standing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these kind of factories are like have co- color coding, like a certain color means a certain rank, if you will, right in a facility. And so I'm like, don't give me whatever is like <laughs> the top one, because I don't want to I don't want to scare people. And I don't want this government logo on me because that also scares people. And then, you know, always really careful when I interviewed employees to explain what my purpose was and that my purpose was to ensure their health and safety. And it yeah. wasn't to find fault with what they were doing when I was asking them questions like tell me how this machine works you know (laughs) right (laughs) right and and that
1: was part of what i found too was was especially it was as i was younger it was easier to be able to ask explain this process to me or Mm -hmm. or i think what i think this is what i'm seeing is that is that how this really happens and you know and a lot of you know mostly workers are are really happy to tell you about right their work and how things work and and what they think could be done to make it better if they feel like that you're a, you're a, at least a trusted source, or you're not. They don't think you're going to do harm,
0: right? Exactly. So you got your start. You realized you could do your work in industry. What was that first job? What, what did you pursue?
1: Well, it was interesting. The first job I, I I had I had been going to school in Akron, Ohio, and my wife and I had moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I was looking for looking after graduate school. So I was looking for work there, and I, I actually applied for and got a job as in the health and safety department. Of an industrial union, a labor union, okay. and so my again my my blue collar family had all been union members, and I knew you know I knew what unions were in general, and you know, but it it wasn't uh, I, I hadn't worked with a as a as a union member, but the idea that I could work for a union, doing health and safety and using science just was even better because <laughs> it was like wow I can I can be working to help my you know again people like my my relatives and my father and my mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing this work and i I hadn't realized unions actually hired staff and so it's really it was really (laughs) fun to do this and and actually the other part the 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 position was actually funded by a federal osha grant under an old program that they called the, the new directions program to encourage organizations to build capacity so it also gave me a link then into some osha kind of directly into osha issues um so uh, it was a marvelous first job. the the, uh, the organization was the Allied Industrial Workers Union that was based out of Milwaukee. They were a small industrial union mm-hmm. that represented workers mostly in the Midwest and at mostly at small at small plants, auto parts, but but a whole range of other kind of workplaces, from grain elevators to metal plating operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gave me this real interesting chance to to see a lot of. You know, fair. You know, uh, medium to small facilities of a lot of different types. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't like I only looked at on, and foundries. I'm thinking of some of the places we went to foundries, right. and 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 it gave me a chance to see a whole lot of types of work sites that were small and medium. Instead of you know, had I you know gotten a job at a, at a large corporate employer that had one major focus like the auto industry, then you see a much narrower range of work sites.
0: Right. Yeah, it's it's absolutely an advantage to be able to see so many places of employment where people are doing their work. When you yep. were when you were doing that work, was it primarily industrial hygiene, or was safety starting to kind of sneak into that as well?
1: Yeah, I, I ended up being a generalist. There were there were actually two of us in the health and safety program. The, the union had about one hundred and twenty thousand members um, hmm. and represented workers at probably about two two or three hundred work sites. So. Yeah. We would do sort of basic health and safety work, industrial hygiene work occasionally, some sampling this the the warehouse sampling that I mentioned I had actually done through the union where the we mm-hmm. we offered as a union that we would do this as a service for free for an employer who was where we had concerns about carbon monoxide, and the employer was willing to let us come in and do that testing and it didn't cost him anything they didn't have to hire an outside consultant and so and and we had good relationships with that employer so that they would be willing to work with us based on the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. There would, there would be safety issues that would come in that, you know, I felt completely unexperienced to work on. But the, the director of our program, who was the other staff person, was a, a wonderful man named Milan Resik. And he had been a longtime OSHA industrial hygienist, had been the mm-hmm. first industrial hygienist in Wisconsin, and oh, had, wow. and had done health and safety work since the since the mid-60s. And so he had this, like, almost 20 years of experience by the time I came to work for him. And so he became this really incredible mentor because he had this huge, broad experience having worked with OSHA. Hmm. And as you know, because your your work with OSHA, how broad that experience gets to be. It
0: absolutely, absolutely is. You know, I guess actually I wanted to um, mention, you brought up a point that I'm wondering if some of our listeners might not know. You had mentioned that you are able to do industrial hygiene monitoring for these places of employment where there was union representation. You're able to do it free for the employer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so as, you know, as many of us are going about doing our work and we're thinking, you know, like how do I have access to resources and where can I go? Because all of us, many, of us, safety professionals, safety and health professionals, don't have a budget, <laughs> yeah, and so you're yeah. trying to figure out creative ways to um, get what you need. And so I think that's a really good tip um, to remind people where they have union representation that they could ask their union if they have someone like you who would be able to help them.
1: Yeah, and and you know you know only you know not as many workplaces are unionized as they were when I started back in, uh, in right. 1981, but but most most major uh, Unions have health and safety staff at their at their internationals. Some large local unions will will even have health and safety uh, staff that may be full or part time and available and mm-hmm. available to help. And lots of of unions have trained members who are trained in safety and health. and And you may be surprised how how much training some of the folks get. The United Auto Workers, the United Steelworkers Union. And and other unions actually have these extensive inter, uh, internal training programs to train health and safety, train members who are on health and safety committees, and members to be advocates for health and safety and help resolve issues. And it can be a, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly powerful way to to take care of health and safety issues where you have good relationships between the employer and the and the union and the members, mm-hmm. and you can really mm-hmm. come up with some really wonderful solutions to problems sort of internally without having. Um, without having to bring in, uh, you know, either outside consultants, but without OSHA being part of that.
0: Right, right. Smart, smart. So I know, Mark, that your career took you on a journey all the way to Alaska. Um, And I'm interested to have you tell that story. Was that after after this job um, that you were just talking about?
1: Yeah, I, w- I worked for a couple years for the Allied Industrial Workers Union, and that was funded primarily by this um, this OSHA New Directions grant. And then that grant funding ended. It was it was meant to help develop capacity. The funding ended. Unfortunately, at the time the funding ended, the, there was a big recession going on in the Midwest, and the uh, the union I was working for had lost almost half its membership, and so oh, wow. I was I was laid off because it just wasn't funding done to. They were trying to hold it together. So mm-hmm. I ended up finding, a, a applying for a job in Anchorage, Alaska, working for a community nonprofit called the Alaska Health Project. And it was a mm-hmm. it was an organization that did occupational and environmental health work for the state of Alaska as a community resource nonprofit. Oh, wow. And and there are there are organizations like that uh, around the country. There are now about 20 of them and they're called they're, they're generally c- called committees on occupational safety and health, but they have various names. And they hmm. and their nonprofit community-based organizations often that work with organized labor, but can work with employers and others to to advance occupational environmental health work. And so I came to Alaska in the summer of 1984 and came to work with this group, thinking that and they were they were primarily grant funded. So the grant I was going to work under had a had a one year. A time frame to it, possibility of an extension on it. But I said, you know, I always wanted to visit Alaska. And I thought, wow, moving to Alaska for a year and working would be
0: really cool. And, and <laughs> Was your you wife know, thinking the same thing? She was. She was actually okay. <laughs> a, a
1: biologist naturalist. And so we both okay. had wanted to oh, visit wow. Alaska. So mm-hmm. so we, we, we drove up right around solstice. The sun was never setting as we drove. We drove all the way across the country to Seattle and up to Vancouver and then took this ferry system up and then got off in Haynes, Alaska. And from, you get up to Haynes, and you think you're at the end of the world if you're not from <laughs> there. And mm-hmm. then it's 800 miles down the Alcan Highway to get to oh Anchorage. My gosh. And so we, we I remember driving into Anchorage at sort of near solstice on the, in the middle of the summer and, and the sun not setting as you know, it's midnight and we're driving into Anchorage. And it was the beginning of the most amazing journey. And both both personally but work-wise was really just quite remarkable. So one of the mm-hmm. it was probably the best thing I did as a young hygienist was to take that job and and be willing to move to Alaska and see what happened.
0: Yeah. And so what what did happen was the, was there was it a game changer for you and your career?
1: It it really was. I mean,
0: first of all I
1: had I, I had really liked the industrial hygiene and occupational health and safety work, but I still had this tug that I really thought about Environmental work and going back to that, and going back, going finishing graduate school and going back to work in environmental work. But the years of working in Alaska, I was up there for almost seven years. That really solidified that occupational health work was what I wanted to stay in and mm-hmm. do. And occasionally, I get involved in environmental work, which is always fun. But but primarily, my you know that that was the kind of change to sort of stay in this profession.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how long did the two of you stay in Alaska?
1: We were in Alaska until the early 19, to 1991, and I ended up moving yeah. to Seattle to work at the University of Washington at their uh, School of Public Health Occupational Medicine Clinic. So it was a big reason to leave, but I was, I had actually... What a big shift. Yeah, it was a really wonderful, that was another wonderful position. I've been really fortunate in my career to, to keep sort of finding a succession of really wonderful jobs and wonderful people to work with the the i mean i had actually just bought a house and i had finally bought a house in anchorage about 1990 and and it was shortly after buying the house that the opportunity in seattle opened up and then we decided to move there and that was also another sort of wonderful choice but but alaska was this, for a young hygienist with a few years of experience i moved there and one of the things i learned early on was there was like there were like 10 or 15 hygienists in the entire state no, it's oh, a, you know wow. it's a huge territory, but <laughs> right. it, but it, it was only half a million people. But mm-hmm. uh, to to be and to be working for this sort of nonprofit that provided community help, uh, I, I remember an experience of being in Fairbanks for the first time, and I had some free time, and I went, I looked in the yellow pages, and went to the local the one the one safety supply store that existed in Fairbanks in 1994. <laughs> Nineteen eighty four. And I went I went in and I was looking around and I introduced myself to the to the staff behind the counter. And when he found out I was an industrial hygienist, he like jumped over the counter and came up to shake my (laughs) hand. He wanted my card. He wanted to know how he could call me. Because he said, There's so few of you here. This is great to know somebody. And and so that was a lot of the reaction was was that. I mean people were and and so you a know famous ih <laughs> yeah I I had never had that reaction before and, and and it was also being you know fairly you know only having three years experience uh, to have people you know really be basic I remember I remember I got a call from a a, a worker in a remote village far in in a, at a school district in the far northern part of the state on the on the Arctic Ocean and he was asking me a question about calibrating a pump because he was going to do some he needed to do air sampling for asbestos. Mm-hmm. And this was early on in the asbestos issues. And and I remember my first thought was, Well, I can't tell you how to calibrate the pump by long distance. And he said, Well (laughs) he said he said, I got trained and I'm not sure if I'm doing it right. He says, You can either help me or I'll just do whatever I think right. So I'd be I'd rather have your help. So it was like, Okay, I can you know, I did my best to help him. And so Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of like, Well, welcome to Alaska,
0: you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how fascinating. And so I bet you put a lot of miles on whatever vehicle you had.
1: <laughs> I did, and and actually uh, a lot of the miles ended up being we we when it, when I first moved there. One of the things that the, the director of the organization said is we want to do more work in rural Alaska off the road mm. system. And he said we're and the group had only been around for three years at that point, so they were fairly new. Mm-hmm. And, and and I remember my director Larry Larry Weiss. He he said we also want to do more work with the native community because the native. Native community is an underserved group here. They have mm-hmm. occupational environmental health concerns, and and we mm-hmm. should do what we can to help. And that and so my my arrival kind of coincided with a lot of focus on on asbestos issues. And so what had happened is, and there's a complex history of, of essentially the the native populations in Alaska got got ownership of one third of the state, and a lot of prior land that used to be federal land was turned over and was being turned over to the natives as their private property and to run their mm-hmm. corporate corporations to earn money and jobs for native peoples. Mm-hmm. And so the issue, a lot of the buildings that had gotten turned over that were schools or other buildings that had been turned over in the feds were full of asbestos. So the mm-hmm. native sure, populations were now asking questions and having to deal with the asbestos rules that were, you know, a hero was coming up shortly after that for asbestos in schools. And so I remember early on, after right right after a Hira passed in 1986, going up to a, a mountain village and training all their school maintenance workers. And there was about 50 of those school maintenance workers, many of whom wow. were bilingual, but some who only spoke the native language, Yupik. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I remember doing a class where every so often they'd ask me to stop, and, and, and there were a couple old-timers, uh, old maintenance workers, and then there would be people who would translate, in Yupik, what i had just said Man, and wow. it was a, it was fascinating and, yeah. um, but you know we, we did you... part of the training was uh, was hands on and if i had any doubts that people were understanding what i was talking about when we did the hands on parts on glove bagging and controls and other things sure. they were they were great i mean they, mm-hmm. they, they got the idea and they were and they were doing a good they job they were demonstrating of, demonstrated yeah. that they that they really knew, knew yeah. up, uh, that they could do the work
0: so you're doing you're doing training, um, had you been much of a public speaker before was this was some of this work some of your first like in front of an audience? like how did that go for you?
1: When I was in high school, I was one of those really shy uh, kind of nerdy scientists and so science students, <laughs> and so I hardly talked at all and so one of the things I knew when I got to college was that there were two things I needed that I realized I needed to change: one was my fear of public speaking I needed to not be terrified because i knew that would limit my my future the sure. other one is i had this terrible fear of heights and so the two things mm-hmm. i did was i took up rock climbing and oh that, and i did that and that was that was that got over the fear of heights the other thing i did is i joined organizations and i put myself in positions where i had to do public speaking mm-hmm. uh, usually around environmental issues that i had an interest in and mm-hmm. and i would be and And then I got involved in as i got as I got uh, into school longer, I got involved in some teaching i was i got involved in some opportunity to do teaching, so I had to get up in front of a class and I was terrified and i would turn bright red and i 'd stutter and i 'd make all the mistakes you could make, but after uh-huh. like a hundred times, you know it got easier <laughs> and, so it takes a hundred yeah. yeah and so when i when I had my first Hygiene job in in Milwaukee, and then the job in Anchorage. It got it was getting easier to do the public speaking because I had had you know I had been I'd been gaining this experience. It still was you know still something that would give me butterflies ahead of time, and sure, and and I would still turn red. I just you know and 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 you know people are usually pretty kind about it. One of the things I recall was someone early on when I was trying to do public speaking said, you know, most people are are way more terrified that. They're thinking, oh my God, I don't want to be up there. I'm glad he's up there. So he said, people are usually sympathetic because mm-hmm. they don't want to be there. They're they're glad you're up there. Mm-hmm, that made it mm-hmm. easier to think about doing mm-hmm. this work.
0: Yeah, that that is that <laughs> is true. That's a, that's a good tip. I um I challenged myself a number of years ago to never turn down any request for speaking. Yeah, because I really wanted to kind of hone that skill and get better at it and i'm still it's still a craft i'm working on and i and uh, you know i love do it doing it and i don't necessarily have i never had that really big fear but i still get butterflies i still get nervous i still get jittery and if i don't those are the times that i usually don't do well but um yeah there's yeah there's specifics public speaking that i don't like doing and it's reading anything that's not my own words out loud, so when I made this promise to myself about I won't turn down any public speaking, that included if I got asked to read something in church, yeah <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's a public speaking thing it's in a it's a microphone, it's a podium. I have to say yes, and so I say yes. And I just don't like it. It still makes me more nervous than anything else because I'm worried I'm going to, you know, skip a line or I'm going to miss something yeah. or I'm going to yeah. see something out of the corner of my <laughs> eye and I'm going to get distracted and I'm going to super embarrass myself and I won't even have known I did it. Right. <laughs> so well, you, those are those yeah. are the times that make me most nervous. <laughs> right.
1: And, and after a while, you, you know, you embarrass yourself enough times that, that, you, that you get better and you yeah. get over that. But it's, yeah, I think it, but, but it's interesting. I look back and that. That was probably the one of the really key things that was not part of my you know, thinking, you know, learning my science and, and developing my skills as as an environmental scientist was what I thought was the most important. But probably one of the more important things was doing public speaking. Yeah. Because that because if you if you if you can't do that well or if you don't work on that and you're not willing to do it, it really does limit what you do. Mm-hmm. I would have never taken that first Job with the with the Allied Industrial Workers Union because part of that job was going to be doing teaching of our union members yeah. and speaking out in public forums like OSHA hearings and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I would have, you know, if I would have, I would have, if I would have just said no, I would have never, you know, I would have never had the opportunity to do all this really amazing. Amazing work. So, in, in high school, I wanted to work. I, I knew I wanted to do environmental work, but I decided I should work in a laboratory where I never had to talk to people. And you know, thank goodness <laughs> you don't. That would have been a limiter. Oh yeah. yeah, thank goodness you don't get what you wish for sometimes, right? So, uh-huh, uh-huh. so I, you know, I've had this most amazing, you know, you know thirty-plus years of doing really wonderful work that I. Feel good about I, you know, there's a satisfaction to the work we do, right? Most days of the last, you know, thirty plus years, I wake up thinking I get to go to work today, which is yeah.
0: And you always get something new, yeah. And you're never done. You're never done learning, yeah. So, I had yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. Someone asked me yesterday for help with nanotechnology and safety. This is a land that I do not know, but I'm absolutely committed to finding out. And so it was it was one of the uh, more fun parts of my work week because it was it was something different. And I get to dig into some um, research and find out, you know, like, how can I help? How can I help this individual um, source some information? So it's it's never there's never a dull moment uh, in our career.
1: And and that's something that I've I found about the health and safety work it's 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 been both both challenging but it's also uh, so so variable I you know I started out in, at doing sort of you know, health and safety work in, in in industrial plants you know pretty straightforward not not necessarily straightforward but pretty common type yeah. of work I mean the the work I just left. Uh, with the Service Employees International Union the major focus of my work the last 4 or 5 years I've been workplace violence prevention and dealing with workplace mm-hmm. violence I would have mm-hmm. I would have never guessed never mm-hmm. in 1981 that I was going to deal with workplace violence but it, it's a major issue in healthcare we had lots of healthcare members especially nurses and this was a major issue that we worked on and so you know you, you have to learn it you have to be adaptable and you have to you yeah. know, do your best
0: yeah, I know that uh, I know a little bit about about that work that you did with workplace violence. And you had mentioned a minute ago about um, testifying at OSHA hearings as well as an as another place that you were able yeah. to hone and test your public speaking skills. And that that leads me to wonder, um, what was it like with the OSHA hearings? How did that how did that happen for you? And have you been called upon numbers of times in your career um, to do that? And what were the outcomes with those yeah
1: well I, I have i've had i've had actually lots of opportunities to um to sort of speak in these in policy meetings, whether it's you know often you know, OSHA public hearings but also in more informal meetings with NIOSH and uh, Institute of Medicine and National Academy of Science and others so it's mm. it's um you know the the you know the the more formal like ones like the federal and state OSHA regulatory hearings you know they're more formalized and there's less sort of interaction. And, and so those are, those are useful because the, you know, the outcomes are so, are so powerful, you know, a, a national OSHA regulation or a state-based regulation can, can, can have an impact on a, on a lot of workplaces. I I, I enjoy more of the sort of more informal and the sort of uh, interaction that, that happens with some of the other meetings, say with NIOSH or with the National Academy of Science, where there's more discussion interaction as you're as you're sort of thinking about policy and thinking about approaches that that will you know, potentially might become OSHA regulations down the road, but at least become policy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so I, I had a I had a, a a wonderful chance. It was in the uh, toward the end of May this last year. The National Academy of Science has a, a subcommittee that's looking at the use of elastomeric respirators as a alternative respiratory protection for healthcare, which is which is not mm. currently used by very many places and they're looking at whether this would help us both provide a better respirator for health care and deal with potential shortages of N ninety five respirators. And so mm-hmm. we had this sort of there, I was able to go and I spoke to the committee and we had some good good interaction talking about that. So that's really feels good to do that sort of work.
0: Right, right. Yeah. You've you're you you've placed your hand on so many different things across the country, um, Mark, in the years that you've done this you've done this work. What are some of your high points as in, you know, impacts that you made that you're proud of or that you, you were part of, you know, your hand was, was uh, at least laying somewhere on that curve <laughs> of change that, um, you know, that, that's uh, something you're really proud of. What are some of those?
1: Yeah, no, I've, and I've been really lucky to work with, as I you know I said earlier, with some really good organizations and, and mostly work with really wonderful coworkers and, and colleagues in the places I've been. So, some of the highlights, I think, some of the, as I look back, um, one of the things I got involved with early on when I moved to Alaska was this, there was the development of asbestos training programs um, mm-hmm. for AHERA and then broader, uh, and then, and, you know, then following up with that, there's training programs for HAZWOPER and lead and, you know, lots of other things. But but in the, in the mid-'80s, a lot of those training programs uh, that I was involved in in Alaska was were um, with the with the uh, construction trades and with their labor management training funds, and a big part of what we were doing was training some of their experienced members to become trainers, peer trainers, to be able mm-hmm. to have you know more uh, more capacity to do the training, and so uh, and I've done that with HasWapper and lots of other programs up until just my most recent uh, job with the uh, service employees, and so I've that's been I think a real highlight is 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 helping. Rank and file members helping front level, front line supervisors, you know, learn enough about health and safety and practice to become good trainers and and to yeah. help spread this work. and And then part of that is they then learn how to resolve you know issues, to re- resolve mm-hmm. health and safety problems, and and to know when they need to call more you know call in for more help, and and then mm-hmm. who to call. And so that's been something I think has been a real, uh, really wonderful part of of. Some of my work over time has been the working mm-hmm. with peer trainers and and helping them grow the capacity to do our work
0: right right i I often refer to it as teaching people to fish, you know yeah but we're not yeah exactly. <laughs> fishing exactly. safety fishing health. we're uh're we're, we're, we're passing along the information i I love that part i, I that's really fulfilling to me as well yeah and so certain... and, sorry, mm-hmm.
1: and and so I, I remember getting a call of uh, after with with a uh, somebody we uh, with someone with the laborers union that I worked with in Alaska, and he he had become a he'd been through our training, been a peer trainer, and was kind of working on health and safety, and he called me one day after uh, after hours and he said you know we we had this lead exposure job this was like 87 before the lead rules really kicked in from OSHA and EPA mm-hmm. and he said he said you know i realize lead is is sort of like asbestos not exactly but here's what here and he and he explained to me what they had done to con- protect workers on the job he was uh, mm-hmm. a supervisor on and it was like perfect it's like it was like the perfect thing to do and where he was you know, where he hadn't done what I would have done, he was more protective because he was realizing Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm kind of out of my depth here. So, you know, Mm -hmm. to see people both be able to do the, to to kind of take what you've, what they've been, what they've learned and apply it to a worksite and then apply it to a different type of worksite and do a good job of it really, really does give you the sense that, you know, we're on the right track here with the peer trainers and and helping frontline workers and, and supervisors to kind of mm-hmm. learn more about how to do this work. And there's plenty of work for us as professionals. You know, we just we need yeah. these folks' help.
0: We absolutely do. Yeah. The, ear- earlier this um, this summer, actually I was in a social 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 setting in my in my um, community and my partner and i were um at a at a public event and he was introducing me to a man that was on a board with him and i said well i actually know who that is i, I said i, I remember h- him as being a company i inspected his company many years ago as an <laughs> investigator and i said he and i had this really powerful experience talking about silica they were um it was a mason masonry company and this man had in, had um inherited um, his business from his dad. And, you know, silica was a big deal at the time I was doing, it was coming back as a big deal rather at the time I was doing my inspections in the nineties. And, um, he was absolutely shocked when I was telling him what the hazards of silica were. And he's like, why did we not ever know this? And, and, you know, what, what, you know, like my dad didn't know how do we, how did, oh my gosh, what do I have to do? And so fast forward to this social setting, my partner introduces me, um, to him. And the guy's like, yeah, nice to meet you, Jill. And I said, you know, I, I remember you, you might not remember me. And then I said, remember I'm the OSHA lady. Cause that's what everybody called me. And he goes, oh my gosh, yes, I do remember you. And he's like, brings his wife over. He's like, Julie, do you remember Jill, the OSHA lady? And they're like, yes. And then he said, do you remember about silica? And I said, Yes, I do. <laughs> like, I, like, I've, it's very clear in my mind, there was this big aha moment that I couldn't believe that a Mason didn't know about this major hazard that they were working with, yeah, you know, yeah. which, again, you know, helped shift and craft the way that I did my work, which was assume nothing, you know, just because it was it was his it was his craft and industry didn't mean that he knew everything about that. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. and so that was just really sort of a um, you know, it changed the way that they did their work yeah, at yeah. that time, and, and, and it was it was kind of fun yeah. to revisit that. And I wasn't reviled as the OSHA OSHA lady <laughs> that day.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's nice. To, it, it's it's you know it's nice to have it be. There's some positive outcome to our work because it's you know mm-hmm. certainly there's this public portrayal that our work is always adversarial, and OSHA's work yeah. is adversarial, union yeah. work is adversarial, and and you know it is at times. But but in many cases that people don't hear about, our work is very collaborative. And you know we, we can still fight inside that collaboration, but but the outcomes right. can be very positive for workplace safety
0: yeah, and health. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I was. So, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Ahead. I was just thinking. You reminded me of of a in in 1988 or 89 or so. I was working with construction workers in Alaska and some of their some of their contractors in the oil fields, and and found out that they had knew almost nothing about benzene. And the hazards of benzene, mm. and mm-hmm. and OSHA was you know had just recently updated their benzene standard, but there had there had been a you know a, a lawsuit back in the late seventies and early uh, late seventies on uh, when OSHA tried to update their benzene standard the first time, it mm-hmm. led to a Supreme Court decision, and and then years wow. later there was you know it was there was a, a new final standard. Many of the workers and managers had just thought this had come out of nowhere; they had no idea what the long history had been, and so. We would do some training and talk about the the history, and mm-hmm. they were they were both fascinated but sort of appalled in the same way. That oh my gosh, how come we didn't know this for fifteen years? Why is this brand right. new to us? Um, right.
0: Yeah. So right, very interesting. Yeah. So, Mark, when you you had mentioned that you um, got this great opportunity in Seattle at the university, mm-hmm. and you left you left Alaska to take that. Yeah. Was that kind of your first? um job that you had where you weren't having this vast exposure to all these different types of employment settings, or am I guessing wrong there
1: it was it was really different you know i uh working in an occupational medicine clinic at the at the university of washington and it was mm-hmm. the we were one of the a major kind of we were a research center where we trained occupational mm-hmm. medicine docs and then we provide uh, patient services to the to the in the you know in the northwest to on occupational disease and some some on back injuries and seeking help but mostly the focus was disease the mm-hmm. the and so what what was different was i was, you know i suddenly wasn't going out to work sites very often but what was happening is sick sick workers were coming into our clinic and so we mm-hmm. saw lots of workers with with asbestosis and uh, potential lung cancer and some mesothelioma cases. We saw lead poisoning, solvent exposures were very common, um, and so lots of indoor air cases. This was in the early 90s, and a lot of indoor air issues. We saw lots of of asthma and sort of environmental sensitivity cases from uh, around the Northwest, from from things like mm-hmm. crab asthma, which is in the in the crab processing from Alaska, was a common mm-hmm. disorder. Who knew? Uh, yeah, and and to you know to you know to radiator you know workers in radiator shops getting lead poisoning, and then you know the the the, the, the historic asbestos disease uh, diseases that were showing up just because of the long history of asbestos use in the Pacific Northwest, and we were seeing people who had started the exposures during World War II and in, in workplaces or the military, and then it was a culmination mm-hmm. of that. So it was this you know i i would i always I always urge my young colleagues or students to if you get a chance as a hygienist to work or or spend time in an occupational medicine clinic, please go do that because the yeah. you know most of us until you do that, you don't really see the people that have the diseases that result from the failure of health and safety work. Right, mm-hmm. and so it was. It was mm-hmm. a fascinating observation on our profession and our work. It was. It was great to to work with the physicians and the occupational medicine docs, and it was really fun to work with the with the with the occupational medicine uh, fellows who were in training. And and because we were at the university, we would work with the other the other divisions of the school of public health. So we were we were. I'd have a chance to work with the industrial hygiene faculty and students, undergraduate and graduate, and the occupational mm-hmm. health nursing. Uh, faculty and students. And so it was this wonderful collaboration. And then we worked closely with all sorts of other, you know, state agencies, some federal agencies, lots of private sector employers and organizations on sure. safety and health. But but it was a really different role because suddenly my my role was to underst was to explore the the exposure histories uh, of of workers coming in to help the docs understand the relationship to the, the symptoms and the signs they were seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't prevention. It was really sort of after the fact. And you know, we try to do prevention, but it's difficult in an occupational medicine clinic to kind of, of lead course. on prevention. You're mostly dealing with people who have who have problems, and you're kind of dealing with that very kind yeah, of reacting. much more narrow mm-hmm. focus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but mm-hmm. it was. But I say, if, if you get a chance as a hygienist to go work in a clinic and, and take exposure histories and work with docs, it's 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 a really wonderful way to sort of broaden the experience of our profession and. And mm-hmm. see how we can play a stronger role in, with occupational medicine docs in terms of yeah. understanding controls and understanding exposure.
0: Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I spent a, about three years in, in an occupational medicine clinic as well, yeah. and yeah. Um, don't regret don't regret any of that any of that time. As well as workers' compensation case management, because it gave you kind yes. of a similar glimpse into that, um, and, and so that was that was very powerful. Powerful learning experience for me as well. Yeah, and so and, Mark, yeah, go No, ahead. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And
1: and and uh, yeah, and 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 it's part of my work in the clinic, even though I was the industrial hygienist, I was, I was, I was the primary one to deal with workers' comp because that that was just oh, kind of sure. how it had evolved, which is yeah. made sense. And mm-hmm. you know, I was I was fortunate in that the state of Washington has a state based workers' comp system that probably mm-hmm. functions as better than most states, and so. There was, uh, especially around the issue of asbestos disease, there was a small group of case managers who dealt with anything that had the word asbestos on it that went into the state <laughs> workers comp system. They dealt with, so they actually knew what was going on. They knew how to, they knew what evidence we needed to provide. They knew about the treatments, and they were so. So that was really helpful. But it's a whole other part of our work that I hadn't really seen much before. So workers comp. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, yeah, it's good work. Yeah. So you were in the Pacific Northwest. You're currently in Maryland, on the other end of the country. Um, did you like have had you mapped out your career as to how you were going to end up <laughs> on the East Coast, or um, how did how did that how did that work for you? I'm assuming there's a lot of years between, but you went from one end to the other. Yeah, I. I what are the highlights of those stops? Yeah, I
1: I, I sort of never had a, a strict career plan, other than have have work I really like doing, and certainly and and. And would look and you know and and when opportunities showed up for other good work, I would be happy to move on and so I ended mm-hmm. up being out west for almost twenty twenty years, and so there were two things happening: one was. Um, I uh, after I, I was at the University of Washington at the Med Clinic for a couple of years. After a couple of years, not being not being so directly involved in prevention, started to kind of seem like a like that's something I needed to go back to. So so I ended mm-hmm. up leaving the university and 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 at the end of my time in Seattle, I was actually working for a, con, a private sector consulting firm mm-hmm. um, that did occupational environmental health and and. Part of part of the reason for doing that work was there were a lot of really good colleagues who worked at the firm um, in Seattle, the Prezon Associates, and they've since been born out and dissolved. But um, the other part was I had had a lot of colleagues who worked in the private sector say, "Well, you you've mostly worked for unions, nonprofits, the university. You don't really know the real. You don't don't really really know the real world, real world." And so uh-huh. I, I worked for this consulting firm, and you know that may not be the real world either. But but essentially, what I <laughs> what I was happy to find was that we could do the same level of health and safety work in in a, in, a, in much of the same way that I did working for a union at the consulting firm. You know, I, the language mm-hmm. would be a little different, but you know, I was often working with 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 frontline supervisors or mid level managers on how to resolve issues. And you know they were, you know they weren't they were at least the people we worked with the employers were people who wanted our services they were paying us to help them solve problems and so um, mm-hmm. if you're looking on problem solving then you know then that's easier you know we weren't working for companies that were going to hire us who were trying to hide their problem and and you know and from people they, we were we were a company that actually was pretty well known that we we, we were expensive but we were well mm-hmm. known as people you we could help you out and so um so it was it was good to see that that i could you know that you could work for the consulting firm number one do good work and do mm-hmm. the work in the same way that you could in other areas of of our work and and, and you know have a, have a good impact and so right. um so i was there for a couple years and then um i was working with them a couple years and then there was this opportunity to to come to the east coast And to work for another small nonprofit that was also one of these committees on occupational safety and health, like I had worked with in Alaska, but it was based Mm -hmm. in D.C., and they were doing a huge amount of training uh, of workers and training peer uh, peer trainers around the country to do occupational safety and health work, and it was called the Alice Hamilton Center. And so I I took the Mm -hmm. chance, and I also after 20 years out west it felt like moving for, moving closer to my to my uh siblings and closer to my family was would, was it was time to do that so i moved back mm-hmm. to the i moved back to the dc area where i have been ever since
0: wow So for anyone who's been listening to Mark share his story and you're thinking, wow, I'd like to get inside that guy's head or like just Mm -hmm. sit next to him and hear about all of this history. Because as you're telling your stories, Mark, you're weaving in all of these historic facts that kind of go along with, you know, like how did we get where we were in the country at that time? How did these things come to be and kind of leaning into the background of, um, of how all of this happened, and so i'm I'm interested for you to tell this tell your story about how and why you started curating a collection of historic videos about workplace safety
1: yeah this this has been one of the really really wonderful parts of the last fifteen years and so when I started work in eighty one and and sort of was was you kind know, sort of new to health and safety. And I was, um, I, I my, the start of my work coincided with with sort of a real burst of of publications, articles, and books about the history of our profession. And mm-hmm. so there were there were some historians at Columbia University who are still around who've done just wonderful wonderful books on the history of health and safety, and and there was lots of interesting research coming out. And um, and so I was I was fascinated by that, and I started. You know, so I was, I would start reading the histories and the histories of, of old industrial hygienists who had been around since the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and the AIHA had put out a book on sort of you know, history of, of, of our profession and that came out in the mid-80s. mid So I, I started reading these things and they were fascinating. So as I started, as I was teaching various classes, I would try to, inter, to interject some of the history because I found it interesting and oftentimes mm-hmm. students found it interesting and and so, um, so I kept doing that, and um uh, one of the things that happens just because you're in the profession and you get older is there were there were training films and things that i had that OSHA had put out and some other agencies had put out in the in the in the eighty in the early eighties, and that we'd use them in teaching mm-hmm. and then uh, you know it's you know it's it's now the late nineties and People are looking at, I've, I'm still looking at these as as new and interesting films. <laughs> and the student reaction is, oh, these are really old. They're and this old, is like, yeah. were you around when these were made? And like, well, they didn't <laughs> used to be old films. But but mm-hmm. I, so I started picking up, you know, both getting older that needed to really talk about things as incorporating history. And then I was, I was uh, when I was working with the Service Employees International Union, and we had a training grant with a wonderful federal program called the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences Worker Training Program, and it's a cooperative grant program that uh, that still exists, and it's really just wonderful collaboration between public and private sector. And it was 2006, and YouTube had had come out, and mm-hmm. the, the 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 director of this uh, training grant program, NIHs, a public servant named Chip Hughes he had he put out a call cuz he was always looking at this new technology and he said is this is youtube something we could use for teaching would it be a good resource mm-hmm. how could we think about using this and so i volunteered as one of the grantees i volunteered to explore youtube as a as a film resource as a resource wow. and so i i uploaded cuz one of the reasons was i was i was sort of not a uh, I was not a technophile, so I figured if I could do it, it was most people could do it. So, so I, <laughs> I I went to YouTube and read some stuff, and I uploaded some films that I had had digitized that were old films I had used in the early '80s from OSHA, and mm-hmm. uploaded them. And it was easy, and so I kept I uploaded some more, and it was a you know it was becoming a good good resource. At one point, e- YouTube emailed me and said I had a channel, which is the oh. channel we've talked about. And so uh-huh. I said, "Oh, well that's cool." And so I just kept I just, you know, kept uploading stuff I kept finding interesting films and materials. And then and then a colleague let me know that uh, who had done some film work had let me know that not far from where I lived on the University of Maryland campus in College Park was the United States Archive Film Library where they had 300,000 films.
0: Oh my gosh. And wow. and so
1: I went there and found out it was not hard to get access to the films and then you could with a With a little bit of equipment, you could actually digitize old films from their archive and take them home with you and They were almost all in the public domain so i so I then started just this serious hobby of of adding films um from world war world War two films on on gas masks and chemical warfare from like nineteen nineteen to um, mm-hmm. films on how to put a gas mask on your horse from the military from World War II.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and then
1: a whole range of other you know, occupational health and safety films. So I found an old film from the Civilian Conservation Corps from, like, 1936 on safety and health and CCC work and and just this whole range mm. of stuff that i just mm-hmm. found fascinating and it really fed my interest in history so uh the, this film channel which is which i continue to maintain as a resource for our profession and for trainers now has over 1100 films on it it, it oh my it's gosh, uh Mark. it's it's had almost 9 million hits over the past uh, 12 years And, and, you know, I continue to add to it. You know, I just added a film recently I was mentioning to you before we started this, a a film on histoplasmosis from the 1950s, which talks about farmers developing histoplasmosis from their exposure to dust and how to control that dust. Hmm. So this is like something Mm -hmm. we still do today, right? We still recommend it. It absolutely is. So yeah so you know we you know we've done a we did a podcast earlier the year about the film channels, and so I think we can we can link people yeah, to that right. and i exactly. would exactly I would encourage people mm-hmm. to you know go to my site, take a look at the films both to both to, to get a better sense of the history of our profession of occupational mm-hmm. environmental health, but then you know where you can use them in your teaching, either teaching professionals or teaching workers. Or managers, you know, I think it's, it can become a wonderful resource for people. And I, I hope people yeah. use it. I'm going to continue to do this into my retirement. It's really <laughs> fun.
0: Exactly. So, the, the name of uh, Mark's YouTube channel is Historic Workplace and Environmental Safety and Health Films. And Mark had um, re, um, referred a, a moment ago that he and I did a webcast earlier this year, which we did together. It's called Heroes in Safety. But I had gotten um, so interested in listening to Mark's stories about um, the history of our profession that I asked him if we could do a webcast together about it and highlight um, some of what um, we ended up calling the heroes in safety. So dating back quite a ways and just kind of marching through History And highlighting um, a number of people who were really game changers to occupational health and safety across our country. And um, you had mentioned earlier, Mark, that you worked uh, at the Alice Hamilton Center as one of the things that brought you to the East Coast. And I know we talked about Alice Hamilton in our um, in our webcast together. Do you want to give our audience just sort of a glimpse as to what Alice, um, what, some of the contributions Alice had Oh, made. sure.
1: Yeah. And the organization I worked for had been named after her. Um, so Alice Hamilton was an occupational medicine doc who, who uh, did her work in around 1910 uh, up until uh, she died in 1970. And she was mostly active from about 1910 until the, the, the mid-40s. But uh, Dr. Hamilton was a was uh, you know a rarity she was a, a female doctor which was unusual at the time most medical schools didn't allow women to be doctors but she she did that work she she was raised she grew up in uh, in Fort Wayne Indiana went to medical school at the University of Michigan and and was a was a physician who worked at Hull house the the, the, the house mm. that worked with immigrant the, the community that worked with immigrant workers in the Chicago area. And that's where she got mm-hmm. her intro, introduction to occupational health issues. She was appointed to an, an Illinois commission in around 1910, 1911, to look at occupational disease in, in Illinois. And then that, that propelled her, that work le- propelled her to the national stage and international stage. As a premier occupational safety and health doc, and and a lot of her work actually was not was not as a physician. A lot of her work was more as an was more what we'd call an industrial hygienist today, doing workplace mm-hmm. inspections and 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 looking at the environment and looking at controls as opposed to just you know looking at workers who have illness and disease. Um, so Dr. Hamilton did uh, was involved in work during World War II on 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 uh, health and safety and munitions work. She did a lot of Work on solvent exposure and and lead lead exposures uh, into mm-hmm. the thirties. In nineteen nineteen, she was appointed to uh, to a position at the school of public health at Harvard, and she was the first female faculty member at Harvard. And right. uh, and so that's one yeah. of her claims to fame. But she's been a right. you know she was she was someone who I learned early on in our profession as a most amazing uh, historical figure. Um, and, you know, if she has a biography that came out on exploring the dangerous trades, which is really a must for anyone who's a student or in our profession. That's a really wonderful thing, a book mm-hmm. to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a, a book of her letter. She was she was a renowned correspondent. At, and so there's huge numbers of her letters that go back and forth on both her health and safety and, and other work. Um, that's a fascinating read. And then just two years ago, a colleague at the University of Illinois found a recording of an interview with her in 1963.
0: I was yeah. just going to ask you about that, yes. Yeah. And we played mm-hmm. part
1: of that on the on the webcast. So in 1963, mm-hmm. there was a series of interviews that were recorded, oral histories of, of Folks who, a faculty who had been founders of the Harvard School of Public Health, and so there's a there's a there's this about an hour and a half interview with her at her home in Connecticut with a dog barking in the background, and she's 93, <laughs> but her voice is still pretty strong, and so we 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 put a little bit of that. Uh, uh, up onto the up onto the website, up onto the channel for people to mm-hmm. to look at, and we we have plans when we get a chance to put more of that up because she tells stories about doing occupational health work, you know, in the decades before OSHA when there was no legal uh, right to do uh, to access it as an outsider um, mm-hmm. and and to to do work in you know in lots of industries where health and safety was certainly not, especially the health issues health issues were not viewed as Important issues to work on are worth work, and so yeah. it's it's uh, you know she's one of one of the heroes of that I have, and a lot of I think other folks have in in uh, you know in our profession because she's a really wonderful right. wonderful historical figure to look at.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Thank you so much for starting and maintaining that YouTube channel for us all to be able to access to to look back at our at our own history and where did we come from in this in this profession that we. That we that we chose and continue to work on. Thank you for doing oh, that. You're welcome.
1: I hope folks will and will will take a look at the channel and and use yeah. it and and contact me if they have any if they have any if they have any questions.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, Mark, as we're getting ready to um, wrap up today, and you're looking at. At this lengthy c- career and all of its stopping points literally across the country, um is there any particular advice that you'd have for um people now in our profession, or maybe even someone just starting out
1: yeah and, and I'm not done yet. I have a few more good years in me i hope and in <laughs> right my absolutely consulting work. but um <laughs> yeah. I, I think the i think the advice that I got early on from some wonderful older older mentor was to to take opportunities that show up and, and just go for it. And, and, and not to be, you know, especially early on, not to be too concerned about making the wrong choice because you just make choices. And so that, you know, that sort of following that advice led me to Alaska to do wonderful work. That then led me to the university of Washington to do again, wonderful work. And it's, it's led me to keep finding really, you know, wonderful places to work and wonderful colleagues to work with. So, I would say for people just to be open to opportunities that show up. You know, do the preparation, prepare yourself. You know, both technically and like public speaking, and then and then just see where it goes. It's sort of luck, but it's also you're prepared for the opportunities that show up.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Good. Good advice, Mark. Good advice. Thank you. So this has been Mark, industrial hygienist, who's just getting started. (laughs) Thank you, Jill. This has been (laughs) remarkable to talk with you. Thank you. Oh I really appreciate your time and thank you all so much for joining in and listening today and thank you for the work that you all do to make sure workers make it home safe every day. You can listen to all of our episodes at vividlearningsystems.com or subscribe in the podcast player of your choosing. If you have a suggestion for a guest including maybe if it's even you, please contact me at social at vividlearningsystems.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.